it is Trinity Sunday, and as I was talking to my new friends, uh, Finn and Granger, they said, what are you talking about? And they're elementary school kids, and they're like, what are you talking about today? And I was like, the Trinity. And they're like, is that the Mariana Trench? And I was like, yeah, it's kind of like that. Not quite, but close, not really. Uh, Trinity, Trinity Sunday is, is quite the Sunday. It's, it's an interesting, the idea of the Trinity is a, is a strange thing. If, like if I say the triune God, I'm sure some of you here and online, you, your eyes glaze over and you're like, triune, tri- what are we, we going to be talking about in a sermon about this? But just to kind of ground us a bit, the doctrine of the Trinity says there is one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So my job this morning is to take us on a journey to rediscover this weird revelation of who God is and what the Trinity means. What does it mean that God is triune? What does it mean that God is Trinity? So let me simplify this just a bit for us to get started on. I I think we get two persons of the triune God. We kind of understand the Father. We get that the immaterial father is the creator and sustainer. And we also get the son. We get this idea. The material Jesus lived, taught, died, resurrected, and ascended. But it's the Holy Spirit, right, that's just a bit out of reach, I think, for us. I think it might be because most of the time, the Holy Spirit is kind of flattened into that thing that makes God three instead of two, right? That's kind of what we know of it. Or if you grew up in the church, um, as I did, and dated Christian girls, as I did, uh, it's that force in the universe that is always telling girls to break up with you. And I don't really like this Holy Spirit. So I'd like to take a journey, and, and I pray that you come to see that the Holy Spirit is not just essential to our future as the church. The Holy Spirit is God. Our text this week is from John 3, 1 through 17. And there's a lot in this section of scripture that we could just like zero in on. But it is Trinity Sunday. So according to the church calendar, uh, I'm supposed to focus in on something that kind of is framed by the Trinity. So I'm going to focus on a small aspect of the text to begin our journey. So in this text, a member of the Jewish ruling council named Nicodemus meets Jesus at night. And they have a conversation about the kingdom of God. Jesus says that you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom. And for Nicodemus, this imagery is very confusing. And he responds with a very literal question, right? How can I be born again from my mother's womb? Jesus kind of chastises him. He says, like, aren't you a religious teacher? Don't you you get how all these ideas work? Uh, But Jesus brings up this really interesting little image that begins our journey, and I think I I want you to, to like, plant this image in your head as we go forward. Verse 7 and 8, this is what Jesus says. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This, this little section of Scripture happens at the beginning of the New Testament, but we really need to have a serious discussion about what is happening here. It's really important. 
Even though the book of John is the fourth book of the New Testament and tells the story of Jesus, the book of John was written really late in the timeline uh, of when books were written in the New Testament. In fact, many scholars believe that the book of John is one of the last books written in the entire Bible, around 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's fair to say that on some level, this is John who followed Jesus, was an apostle of Jesus. This is John reflecting, reflecting on what has happened to him and his friends over the years, what God has done to them. And I actually kind of mean it like that. It's what God has done to them. And when we, when we think about these, er, these early Jewish followers of Jesus, we often hollow them out like these characters in a kid's Bible, or we see these, these old pictures, and this is kind of how we think of these early apostles. Uh, and if, they were, if, if we were writing about their life, if they, were, if they were in some way talking to you about their life, about Jesus dying in Pentecost, often we think that, oh, they would probably be like, oh, it's so amazing, there's all these crazy miracles and whatever, whatever. Um, but I, I propose to you, they might not say it was just simply wonderful and great and happy. These early apostles might actually have a hard time telling you about what happened. Maybe the death and resurrection was not just a thing that happened with Jesus. Maybe they were living it too. For instance, think about this. Think about this. Most scholars believe that given the life expectancy of the region and a few key textual clues, the apostles probably met Jesus when some of them were as old as 30, but a lot of them were as young as 13. John, who most people believe was the youngest apostle, was probably 13 to 15 years old when he met and followed Jesus. When he wrote the Gospel of John, tradition says he might have been around 70. So what if John is not writing a history book, but a kind of memoir of his childhood belief system and the radical and dangerous journey these early followers took to rediscover who God is and what God was doing in the world. If John was 13 and, or 15 or a young teenager, and assuming he was a faithful Jewish young man, he would have been fully aware of a few things that we need to discuss as we head forward. So we need to discuss a Jewish doctrine and one Jewish practice. Everybody with me? We're going to get Bible nerdy here for a second. Let's do this. John would have been fully aware of the Shema. This is one of the core doctrines of the Jewish faith. It is from Deuteronomy 6. It would have been quoted every morning and evening, and it would go something like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John, that, that would be the doctrine, right? John also, the practice, would have been circumcised. And this was a big deal. This was, this practice was at the heart of what it meant to be the people of God. It was the symbol of God's covenant with Israel. I mean, like, look at this text in Genesis 17. And imagine the reverence and fear the Jewish people would have had of this practice and what it meant. Let's read it. You'll, it'll be up here. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. 
Okay, we get it. Including these born in your household or, or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. Again, like, you get this. You must do this. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is a big text. This is a big practice. Right? It's not even fair to say that these are massive parts of what it means to be Jewish. That's not even fair to say it like that. You could almost say that for a 13-year-old John, this practice and this doctrine constitute what it means to be Jewish. Right? This is the faith. Over the journey of his teenage years, John follows the rabbi Jesus. He learns to interpret Torah, but also begins to notice that the rabbi not only interprets Torah creatively, the law creatively, but also speaks as if this is the way it is to be interpreted. Jesus speaks with authority. John then follows Jesus to the cross and is standing at the cross as the Roman and Jewish leaders murdered Jesus like a terrorist. And John, this teenage boy, potentially and most likely not only loses a friend, a teacher, a mentor, but also realizes that this cross might be his future as well. After the death of Jesus, he gathers with the other Jewish followers of this Jewish rabbi, and they are in complete devastation in fear of what has happened. The Romans might be coming for them too. And at this point, they begin to get word that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Women begin, begin saying that they have seen Jesus alive. And John eventually witnesses the presence of the risen Christ. And over the next few weeks, followers all throughout Jerusalem have these experiences and stories of seeing and meeting Jesus. And eventually they witness Jesus ascend to heaven and they are given the command to teach people what they have witnessed and go wait for another to come in Jerusalem. Why do I tell you all this? Why did we just recap all of that? You've heard this story a million times. Because I really want to submit something to you that I think is a little wild. It's a little wild. <laughs> There's not like a simple way to put this. As John began to realize that Jesus was God, we get that part, right? We get that part. But it was simultaneously putting him at odds with one of the core doctrines of what it meant to be Jewish. So the more he was struggling with God being the Father and Jesus, the harder it was the harder it was for him to understand how God is one. How could God be one, but also two? It's a sign here that God was pushing these early Christians into an impossible position, an illogical position. In order to follow the God he made commitments to as a kid, he had to seemingly be unfaithful to his childhood understanding of his faith. So the early followers had to make this impossible move. Somehow, these early followers of Jesus had to work to stay faithful from wherever the wind came from and yet follow wherever the wind was going. Tracking with me? So as archaeologists and historians studied the early church, they discovered a symbol that I think is going to be really helpful for us. The early, this is an, a symbol that the early church would use about itself to communicate what the church is, right? They would often, because people didn't read, 
they would use symbols, and this symbol somehow communicated, I think, I want, I want to say like a feeling as of to what the church is. And the symbol was all over the place throughout the first and second centuries. Interestingly, the symbol of the early church would use, that they would choose to use to represent itself was a boat. Take a look at some of these images. A boat. Considering Jesus tells Nicodemus that those born of the Spirit are like a wind that blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The imagery of a wind blowing a boat to its future, to its future, is an imagery that I want to cement in your head as we talk about this final story. So after, right, after Jesus ascends into heaven... The early Jewish followers of Jesus go to Jerusalem to wait for God to show up again. Jesus promised that another would come, another, a third, to come to take his place. Pentecost happens, and the early followers of Jesus experience the Spirit of God being set loose in the world, the Holy Spirit, into the world. And after the violent wind of Pentecost, right, it sounded like a violent wind, the early Jewish followers of Jesus began witnessing evidence of the Holy Spirit crossing previously uncrossable boundary lines and working in the lives of the Gentiles. And the evidence of this was that these uncircumcised Gentiles were beginning to worship Jesus and they were wanting to belong to the church. Well... The spirit is obviously experienced like a violent wind because let me tell you, in the book of Acts, when uncircumcised Gentiles begin wanting to belong to the community of Jewish Jesus followers, a massive fight breaks out. And we're going to read this. this. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, I'll just confess to you. It's like a drama, and it feels like all of Acts is building to this story. So we're going to check out Acts 15 and see if you can hear, if, you're, if, you, if you can hear the echoes of this story in today's world. Because, man, these stories happen, <laughs> happened, but they still happen. Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judas to Antioch and, they, and, they, and, were teachers, and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the t- custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Side note, this was biblically accurate. Remember, we actually read a Genesis text earlier that showed the biblical command of circumcision. And there really isn't like a way around it. The text explicitly says what these Pharisees are saying it says. It's not, it's, it's not like they don't have a leg to stand on here. They're asking their fellow Christians to follow the word of God. Verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. And debate. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Right? This is a few years after Pentecost happens, and there's already immediately a fight. I love it. This is like so us humans. I love it. This feels so real. Like the Bible says no, and yet these leaders of the church were saying, well, is this the future of what God is doing in the world? And these certain people were like, but it's wrong. It says so right here. How do you explain that? And Paul and Barnabas were like, yeah, but they're wanting to participate in the life of the church. So what are we supposed to tell them? 
No? Are we supposed to tell them no until these 35-year-old dudes are circumcised? Because, I don't know, for some reason, they're just not interested in that. <laughs> so now they are... Man, all ages humor right here. <laughs> so now they're at, at a big meeting in Jerusalem to discuss this new problem that the Spirit of God has created. And I, and I mean this. They're discussing a problem that the Spirit of God has created. It's great. And the f- members of the Pharisees who were believers stand up and they say this. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So at this point, the leaders of the church all meet together and they fight. They fight it out. The message version, it says, the conversation got heated. (laughs) Of course it did. And eventually, Peter stands up and speaks. Now, before we read what Peter says, remember that Peter is an apostle that denied Christ three times at the cross and was forgiven by Christ for his betrayal. However, and listen closely to this, considering the imagery the church would use to describe itself, Peter is also the guy who gets out of the boat and walks on the water amidst the wind and the waves with Jesus while everyone, is, everyone else is afraid of what might happen. So this is kind of Peter's character. He stands up and says, brothers, of course, brothers, this is, that's a side note, just thumbtack that. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's referencing what happened at Pentecost. Peter preaches and all these people come to know Christ. In other words, I, you remember what I did? Like, I, I kind of have some say around here. God who knows the heart, Peter says, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by his fidelity to them. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Peter stands outside the boat again, kind of on the water. But this time he is yelling back to the boat saying, Church, look at the sails. The wind is blowing this way. But because we don't know where the wind is blowing, some of you have grabbed an anchor and you're throwing it over the bow. And if you do this, if you do this, the wind is blowing so strong, you will tear this boat apart. In fact, it seems today the anchor might be back with a vengeance. In fact, I would submit the anchor is always with us. It's always sitting right there in the boat. And this story happened, and it is still happening. In fact, the reason chapter 15 seems to be the climax of the book of Acts is maybe because the early church was trying to communicate the reality of what it meant to be the church to future generations and how the church might know when the wind of the Holy Spirit begins blowing in a new direction. 
The problem with the story is that at times in my life, and I'm sure in times of yours, at times it, it, in this church, I am the Pharisees, and at other times I am Peter. They both rage inside me. When I'm the Pharisees, I, I'm trying to protect the past and hold on to the present. I'm reminded of my upbringing, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the people and places that have shaped me. I have a clear sense of who I am and what group I belong to, and I don't want to lose that. And I am afraid that tomorrow will not be like today. And when I'm Peter, I've realized that my imagination of the past is only a small experience of it. I've realized that my version of the present is only a small experience of it. When I'm Peter, somehow, by the grace of God, I have included the witness of the poor and oppressed into the truth of the past and present, and I have realized that the future can no longer be like today. Because maybe I'm good, but things can't stay the same for them. Finally, and this one hurts. I find that I'm most like Peter when I've realized that if my community knew everything about me, In other words, if my brokenness was more visible to the masses, I wouldn't be allowed to stand here and teach. And yet I have confessed and been given mercy, and I've been trusted to maintain these sails and take care of this boat. So what Peter is hitting us with is this. If we are the people of God, and if we can trust the Father of creation with our past... If we are the people of God and we can trust the body of Christ with our present lives, can we be the people of God, pull up the anchor, and trust the Spirit with our future? Can we imagine a community with other people who will never be like us? Can we worship? Can we pray? Can we serve as a community with other people who might never agree with the way we see the world. So how does the story end? Coming to the end. Acts 15 feels like the entirety of the book of Acts is building to this like point. It also feels like when John writes Jesus telling Nicodemus about the wind and the people born of the Spirit, this event was in mind. So I propose to you a confession. I kind of think one of the reasons we don't know about much about the Spirit, one of the reasons we marginalize the Spirit to some weird corner of the Trinity is because we don't talk about Acts 15, like hardly at all. Like why is Acts 15 not a bigger story in the imagination of what it means to be the church? I'm sure there are a lot of reasons. The main one I propose to you is this. Acts 15 is a mirror, and we don't want to accept the reflection We want to think that there is a perfect church out there somewhere following Jesus perfectly, and the church oddly agrees with everything we agree with. (laughs) And then we we think the church is about being right and being on the right side and doing the right things. But what if the people of God are a means of grace in a world of chaos? We often think that Jesus gave the apostles a manual, and then if we could just get everyone to follow the manual, then boom, there would be no disagreements and no tensions and no fights. But what if the fight is, what if the disagreement is necessary for the grace? I think Acts 15 says, no, this is the people of God. 
The church didn't come with the manual. It came with stories. The church didn't come with eternal static lessons. It came with habits and rhythms and practices. The boat wasn't handed to us on autopilot. It's not a train. It's a boat. And these early leaders were taught by Jesus how to sail. And in Acts 15, we are witnessing how the church sails the wind, the wind and the waves. How the church moves when the wind changes direction. When they finished up, James spoke up. James is the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Also, if you follow some scholars, James, even in the New Testament, seems to have some disagreements with Paul, which is like incredible. You should like kind of read that. James is the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's, so he's kind of a big deal. So verse 19, this is what he says. In conclusion, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And so James stands up, and the church decides to reinterpret the rules of what it means to be the people of God. James, the brother of Jesus, reinterprets the structure in order to be, a, to be faithful to the past and follow the Spirit into the future. In order to continue being a means of grace for the world. Why did the early church feel like this was something they had a right to do? Like, it's, it, I'm struck by this. Like, what possessed them to think? Like, I, I think we can do this. Can you imagine the church today feeling they had a right to reinterpret giant doctrinal and foundational practices of what it meant to be the church? Again, not throw them out, reinterpret them. And three things were at the heart of this text. Circumcision, dietary laws, and sexual morals. And by the end of Acts, the church reinterpreted two of those three. <laughs> and in case you're thinking to yourself, yes, but this happened in the Bible. And once the Bible is written, everything is finalized and changes over. To that I would say, it is Trinity Sunday. The early church in the third century, 200 years after the final book was written, decided to create the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thus reinterpreting the Shema. The Shema from being about a God that is a uniform one to a God that is a unitive one, a perichoretic communal one. So at this point, I think we must confess at one point, the church believed that the Holy Spirit was God. At one point, the church believed that the future of God was blowing into the present and filling our sails with the future. But it is true. Sometimes, and at times, we want to throw the anchor overboard. I want to throw the anchor overboard. But as Peter warns, if we do that, we might tear the boat apart. What does seem to be appropriate is that maybe, maybe, for, the, for those of you like me who are just like, I, I don't know if I can just like give up the anchor. <laughs> maybe we need to find leaders like James 
patient leaders who act like a rudder. Sometimes this wind is blowing so hard, if we just let the, if we let the rudder up on the boat, the boat will turn so fast, we'll lose people that way too. Maybe we need patient and diligent and intentional leaders to guide the ship to wherever the wind is blowing. Because may you hear the words that Jesus spoke to Peter in Matthew 16. May you hear this fresh today. It'll be up here. I will give you the keys, Jesus says this to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Church, may you come to hear the words of John as he writes as an old man for the next generation of the people of God. John 20, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So church, may we look at Acts 15 like as a mirror and ask ourselves the same question they were wrestling with. May we look at Acts 15 and ask ourselves the same question that they were wrestling with. What will we forgive? What will we forgive? May we be a means of grace in a world of chaos. What will we forgive? Let's pray. God, I'm, thank you for, I'm thankful for Trinity Sunday, and I am grateful that... I'm grateful for that, that we have this, we've all had this experience where we, we are stuck in this impossible position. We want to be faithful to our past, but yet follow you into the future. This seemingly contradictory position, God, I just, I ask that you would help us as a church to be patient, to wait for the spirit to move. We bring into this place all sorts of pains and ideas and imaginations. And God, help us to speak the truth about our life to each other, but help us to be patient, to, to look at the sails and wait for where the Spirit shows up. God, as many people will walk through these doors, as the Spirit is bringing people into our community, and as they tell the truth about their life, God, help us to always be asking, what will we forgive? How might we create a space where everyone can belong and to worship and find the community and participate in the life of the Trinity? God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.